I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. With Remembrance Day upon us, I felt this was a fitting episode to release. I speak with a good friend about how, as a Canadian, he joined the British Army, his experiences doing SAS selection, and more. So I'm sitting down with Jason Budd. Jason, I've known you longer than I haven't known you. You were over here in the office and we're looking at putting together some navigation courses that would be of value to the Silver Corps members and to the general public. And I figured while you're here, let's just jump on the podcast here because you've got a really interesting background. You did a little over 10 years in the British Army. Uh, Actually, just short of 10 years, Job. Just short of 10 years. you know. It felt like longer. Yeah. (laughs) I I always said it took two weeks to get in actually. This is back in 99. So they, it was like a fast track program. Yeah. But then I said it always took me 10 years to get out. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Now the fast track program. So you're a Canadian citizen and born and raised in Canada and you ended up over in the British army. Yeah. I guess my background part of that is like, we actually met when we were in cadets. That's right. And it was, I think, a Vernon camp. That's right. I remember that. I was in Alpha Company and you're in the Rifles with Patrick Holden. I was actually Alpha Company, then Bravo Company, and then over into okay. Rifle Company. Yeah. I worked my way through. I was like, man, I, they have this brand new Rifle Company. I want to be there. Yeah. And so I worked my way from each one over the course of a week until I got into the Rifle Company. Into the Rifle. And then uh, Patrick and I were best friends back then and yeah. you were friends with them and that's how we... That's right. We connected. Yeah. That was like, what year? 92? Oh yeah. Both that, going back a bit. Yeah, 91, 92. Yeah. Yeah. So I started in cadets and then 17, I joined the reserves and then I kind of like on and off became what we call, I guess, full-time reserves without committing to being in the full-time. And then I think at 20, I, I knew that I wanted to, of all things, join the RCMP or the police and I wanted to do something different. And just joining the Canadian forces. And I looked at where most of the Canadian bases were. Right. Wainwright, Petawawa, Shiloh. And I'd been to enough of them as a reservist. And in Wainwright, the British Army always trained there. And I always saw their equipment, their morale, when they're out, the training. And I just thought I had to look at them. I spoke to a bunch of different regiments. And I made a leap of faith in, um, I think, 98 or 99. And off I went and well, wasn't there an exercise where the Brits came over? Yeah, it's true. So there was exercise they call Punjab West, where the British would come to Wainwright. And at that time, I was actually in the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada, and we were attached to the first battalion, the Highlanders, which was their affiliated regiment. And I went there with a Canadian section and was attached to them for four weeks, five okay. weeks, I think. Did a week of adventure training in Canmore with them. And that was, I think, in August. And then I made the connections I had with the Highlanders. Right. Recruiting officers and everything else. And basically left the Seaforth and the reserves and had a one-way ticket. And 
You see if I win. The story I heard from other people was that during an exercise, the Brits came over, joint exercise, and you said, this is for me, jumped on the back of the truck, and that was it. <laughs> Away yeah. you go. But it, I guess there's a bit more to there's it. There's a bit more to it, for sure. <laughs> now, one of the processes that actually made it easier for me was that I had a British passport through my dad. Ah. So that actually facilitated the process, but they were actively recruiting Commonwealth in the late nineties. Right. Like they actually stopped then the downsizing 2005, but there was a big influx of Commonwealth soldiers and, um, maybe not so many Canadians. I, I met the odd Canadian in the Royal Marines or in some other maybe English regiments, but I mean, there was a lot of Jamaicans and Fijians and South Africans and that tended to be more of the, the typical colonial. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I remember around that time, I figured I'd jump on a plane and go over and enlist with the Brits. And I uh, saved up all my, my dollars and had everything squared away with a recruit, recruiting officer and went on over, went to the recruiting office, had my appointment. And when I got in there, the recruiting officer that I was dealing with, who says, yeah, you're part of the Commonwealth, not a problem. Come on over. We'll get you. We'll get you signed up right away. He wasn't there. He'd been transferred and there was a new yeah. person in there and what I didn't realize at the time and what you've told me afterwards, essentially she was just pouring a bunch of cold water on me, but she yeah. says, well, yeah, you're Commonwealth, but you can't do anything security related unless you're a British citizen for, I think it was five years. And I said, okay, yeah, not a problem. What's security related? She says, well, why don't I show you what isn't security related? And it was like janitorial duties and even some of the janitorial duties they said were yeah. <laughs> security related. And said, well, hold on a second, five years, oh, that's right. And your minimum engagement has got to be four instead of three. And anyways, after all of the information she gave me and I went through and I processed it and I thought, geez, five years, and I, I'm not going to be getting a trade or anything unless I'm in for what, like 12 years. Cause I can't start until anyways, I, uh, I ended up using the money I saved up and went uh, touring around Europe with yeah. it. And, but you know, everything happens for a reason. I would imagine that, uh, had I just persevered there and just said, forget it, I'm, I'm in. Once I'm in, I would be doing anything. Well, I think it's interesting is, is that had you just focused on the infantry, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would have been like for myself, I, I didn't go there with the concept of getting a trade. I was going to the infantry and, right. um, I wanted to be in the RCMP. I wanted to do three years, something different. Mm -hmm. And, um, I said, I'm going to go to the infantry, the best way to get the experience. I also had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go on SAS selection. Right. So what's interesting about SAS selection is about that security clearance that you're talking about. Yeah. They regularly get people with the same aspirations of Commonwealth coming over. They do the time in the infantry and then go on SAS selection. We don't actually pass the security clearance. I actually failed it prior to going on selection. Really? Yeah, I didn't pass it. But the SAS, they, they still put you on course. Okay. And then once you actually, if you were to be successful through their phase, right now you're in the SCS, they, they just turn around and go back to whoever deals with the security clearance going, yeah, he's a badge member SCS and you just get rubber stamped. Ah. So none of the colonials actually pass the security clearance prior to selection anyways. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. So it doesn't matter like the, you know, you're in, you're in. So that's yeah. the concept with that. Um, it's an interesting story about myself. I was in contact with the Highlanders recruiting team. So prior to that, I wrote the parachute regiment. I wrote the Royal Marines. I wrote the Royal Green Jackets. Yeah. The Royal Irish. And none of them were actually actively recruiting me. Okay. Same kind of roadblocks with you, but yeah. being attached to the Highlanders 
and the C4th, their affiliated regiment, their recruiting officer, Captain Mackay, actually took a real live interest in, in recruiting me. So that's what, where I ended up with them, right? Got and it. They actually said to me, send us your military documents. Um, we're going to put you up. I think it's Cameron Barracks in Inverness. That's their headquarters. So we'll feed you. We'll put you up. And uh, just show up here. Let us know where your paperwork is. We'll send it over. We'll facilitate it. You'll get fast-tracked through training. And you show up in the battalion. So yeah. one-way ticket. I overpacked. Um, <laughs> ended up with three bags. You know, we need to go to Europe with three bags. Right. I didn't know. I'm thinking I'm going here. One-way ticket. Yeah. And I uh, got the train up to Inverness. I get to Inverness. I go to a B&B check-in. I let Captain Mackay know I was there. He sent a driver, picked me up, took me down to the recruiting center, and it came apparent that they weren't going to put me up in the barracks, they weren't going to feed me, and they lost all my paperwork. <laughs> oh, so I had hard copies when I came over. So there's no fast track yeah. to this, but the actual paperwork and process, it took me two weeks to get processed through the actual recruiting application process. Right. But I was running out of money too. I was staying at this Airbnb and um, I guess it was an Airbnb back then. It was Not just B&B. &B. It was just a B&B. Yeah, B&B. <laughs> so they sent me down to the job center. And I'm like, I go down to the job center, I make a place to get a job. Because now that's what was actually good about having the British passport is I could work. Right. Right. So I go to the job center, it became very apparent it's, it's their dual welfare office. And a claim is going to take a minimum of six weeks. Right. And I'm like, well, I can't wait six weeks. I'm going to be starving. Yeah, no kidding. So I said, okay. We, I said, let's do the process. So meanwhile, I go back to their, to their B&B and the owners are like, well, if you're going to be here more permanent, we're, we have a friend that's living in France and he has his flat that we can rent out weekly. Yeah. So I think it was a couple hundred pounds a week that it, maybe a hundred pounds a week I was paying for this flat. So I moved into that. Yeah. But that night I went down, I thought I'd go check out the local nightlife and I go into this club called Mr. G's nightclub and I see a sign that says help wanted. Yeah. So I go to the bouncer and I say, Hey, this is help wanted. And he's like, brings out, he goes, gets the manager and the manager's like, can you come back for an interview in the morning? Yeah. So I'm like, sure. So I come back at this interview and, um, I'm thinking I'm just going to be a bottle collector. And he's like, great, you're going to be a bartender. So in UK, you, don't need a, <laughs> you don't need like a, a bar license, right? Right. No serving. I'm, like, right. I'm going to be a bartender. He's like, yep. You start tonight. I'm like, okay. I've never a pint in my life <laughs> and it was a saturday night i leave mr g's and it was mobbed and it's not like encounter everybody lines up nicely it's like everybody five deep at the bar yelling their drink orders at you <laughs> and it was like you know baptism under fire and yeah. um i really enjoyed it and i actually took a couple extra months off to just enjoy being a civilian and and being a bartender in Mr. G's nightclub in Inverness. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, but bartenders there, they don't make a lot of tips. Okay. And you're making a minimum wage. So I uh, I picked up extra shifts in the morning. I'd, I'd come back and help the cleaners clean. Okay. But even between cleaning and bartending, I was only making enough to feed myself twice a day, mm. basically. And right. then my life was just basically, so I would, uh, let's just start from... Like say that the nightclub shuts down at 2 a.m. or 1.30, 2, yeah. 2.30, you're back home. I would sleep to probably 3 to like 8 o'clock. I did that, you know, maybe four or five hours. If that, get up. I'd go um, help the cleaners for three or four hours, come back, have an afternoon nap. I would work out, 
run weights because I'm still trying to maintain fitness for the for the yeah. getting in the British Army. And then um, I would go, and Mr. G's nightclub had a, a pub attached to it called the Niles. Okay. So I'd pick up early shifts there at six, helping in the Nile, and then I'd rotate up to the nightclub around nine thirty, ten when it got busy. And I did that for maybe two months till October, and I realized it's fun, but I didn't come here to right. do that. And then what was happening as well was there was a change in the system where initially my enlistment would be three years. And if I didn't enlist before this date in like early November, I would be bumped to a four-year minimum engagement. That's what the woman was telling me, the yeah. recruiting office. Yeah. So I, at the time, didn't care. It was like maybe nine o'clock in the morning, like Captain McKay sent one of the high, couple of the recruiting Highlanders over in the Land Rover and knocked on my door and I'm like, get dressed, come to it. And he's like, get in the Land Rover. And then I went, you know, had a chat with um, Cap McKay and, and he's like, yeah, you got to get this going. So I did. One thing that they did do was they send you down for a fitness assessment. It's like right. a three day. I don't even remember. I think it was like the Army Foundation fitness assessment. It was like a two day program to see where you were. And I scored really well at it to the point where I came back to my recruiting sergeant and said, how well did I do? He said, exceptionally. I said, good enough to go to the parachute regiment. Because I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to the parachute regiment. Yeah. And unlike maybe in the American Canadian Forces, that's you you join straight from the street and you go to the parachute regiment and you do their, right. you know, their training, B company and so on. The recruiting sergeant I was dealing with is like, hold on a minute, makes a phone call. And then down comes this major from the Highlanders, <laughs> the retaining NCO or officer, right? He sits me down and he's like, you know, Mr. Bud, like, you're right, you could go to the parachute regiment, but if you come to the Highlanders, you're definitely going to get on Junior Breck and your section manager's course earlier. And he goes, if we're going to do this for real, let's do it for real. He goes, join the Highlanders, do your time, get on section manager's course, and then go on SAS selection. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And then, so he retained me because I'm like, ah, let's knew, just go to the parachute regiment. You knew exactly what to say. Yeah, you knew what to say. So <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, so... I, I think I started when we did it then it was, um, they called it the army foundation college and then off it was in Edinburgh. Right. So the Scottish division and dark, gloomy, rainy place called Penny cook okay. and, uh, up in Glencourse in Edinburgh and the, in the Pentlands. If, if anybody's been there very hilly, yeah. very wet. And I think that night I, I go into the, um, they call it the cookhouse. Okay. And there's a distinct song. I always remember playing and it's cold play. Why does it always rain on me? <laughs> and I'm just like, it's depressed, right? And yeah. the food, my goodness, the food, where do I even start with it? Um, I had to get my friends to send me vitamins. Was that to, bad? To supplement the food. Yeah. Oh, it was man. like, we definitely can get malnourished here. Wow. Like, well, they got a nickname for the British Army, right? The well, the Brits don't actually know that name, but uh, <laughs> they're not unaware of it. But the Canadians always called them the shit eaters. That's right. Yeah. And, but the Brits are completely clueless. To really? That, that's their, anyway, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, you know, that was, uh, I think back then it was maybe a 12 week basic training. Yeah. At the end of it, because I was a, a section commander in the C4, at the end of it, my report yeah. indicated that I didn't, they said possibility of skipping the next trade would be my infantry training and right. just go to battalion. Okay. So the next phase is we all traveled down to Catrick, the Infantry Training Center, Catrick. Right. So Catrick, they call it ITC Catrick, Infantry Training Center, Catrick. It's the biggest garrison in Europe. 
It also has the most CCTV cameras in Europe per capita. Okay. I had a meeting with the company commander of our training company I was in, and he said, oh, the reports from your basic training said just fast-track Highlander Bud to the battalion. What do you think? Uh, you know, sir, I'm, I'm open for anything, whatever you think. And I can't remember how it went down, but we may have flipped for it. Really? I can't remember that, <laughs> but I, but somehow I ended up on training. <laughs> I didn't go to battalion. Okay. So, um, we were there for the first, I, the infantry training, I believe was 14 weeks. Right. That's so a long haul. Yeah. Two of my best friends that I'm still in contact with is Marty Gray and Dean Nugent. Marty was from the Black Watch and Dean was from RGBW regiment. Taking a step back, my mom was, uh, we found out was really sick. Hmm. And um, we, I actually brought Marty home to Canada on vacation. I call it vacation, on leave between right. the basic training and, and ITC Catrick. Yeah. Of all things, Marty loved hockey, played, I guess it'd be semi-pro in Dundee. Wow. Yeah. So he loved hockey. He loved our food here, obviously, right? Well, Marty actually, like I said, he was a, a big lad from Dundee. So being a smart colonial that it was, you befriend the biggest Toughest guy on the course. Right. And that was Marty. Right. There you go. <laughs> the, the thug from Dundee. There you right? go. He's actually the RSM of the Black Watcher, three Scots right now. So wow. He's done really well for himself. Yeah. Yeah, Dundee. I, yeah. Now I know where it is. There's a limerick about Dundee, yeah, but well, I won't repeat that here. He's actually from Forthar. Okay. Dundee was kind of like, they had a saying, they called it, bide away from Dundee. Bide okay. away from Dundee. Yeah. Scottish. Jockeyese, yeah. right? But just, you know, Jockeyese is its own language. It's basically Scottish slang mixed with British Army slang, and they've created their own language the jocks have in the, in the British Army and the jocks are the Scots, right? Jockanese. Called Jockanese, right? All right. It was really hard. Like, when I first got there, like, during section attacks and training, I couldn't even understand anything being told to me. Like, <laughs> I'd just point me towards the direction I'm going because the jocks would get fired up. And then the, the, the different dialects, you got the Glaswegians, you got the Invernesians, you got Aberdonians, you've got... You know, by the time I came back three, three and a half years later as an instructor, I could totally hear pretty much in the entire British Army, even the English regiments, and know what regiment they were going to or what town they were from. Really? Just by their accents, yeah. Wow. Yeah, like, for example, the Royal Highland Fusiliers recruited from Glasgow. Right. So you just knew they were the Ouija's, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so long story short, long weekend. Prior to that, I knew my mom was really sick. I remember waking up when I was home on leave and, and, um, her crying. I remember hearing her crying in the living room right. and I came out and, um, I just hugged her. She was yeah. crying and her whole body was in pain. Yeah. And I said, mom, I'm not going back. I'm going to go AWOL and hang with you. Mm. And my mom was like, not a chance. No son of mine's going AWOL. Um, you're getting back on the airplane. And that was actually the last time I actually saw her. Right. Just prior to the long weekend, my dad called me, he goes, you know, son, we've found some bad news and your mom has cancer and it's terminal mm. and um, she has a year to live. Mm. So that hit me pretty, pretty hard, right. pretty devastated. Totally. I was a mama's boy. What can I say? Sure. Right. Yeah. And uh, I go up on the long weekend and then on the Saturday, my dad calls me. He's like, okay, your mom has 24 hours to live. So that chain, I'm like, what is going on here? So I told Marty and his partner, I'm like, I got to go. I get on the train Catrick has like, or ITC Catrick had, um, there's like f at the time five training battalions mm. in training. 
So I ended up calling not my sergeant major. I ended up being the guard sergeant major. Really? But I just called, and I just didn't have the right number, and I called him, and I said, I'm on my way down. I said, this is me. I, you know, I know you're not my sergeant major. He got all my info. He passed it on to the um, my company sergeant major. Mm. He had a driver waiting for me in, in um, Darlington, the closest town, Land Rover, straight in, packed my bags, jet down to uh, Heathrow, and I was on the next airplane back to Canada. Um, wow. And then I got back shortly, and um, my mom was already in a morphine coma, and then mm. didn't really get to say my goodbyes, and then she passed. So right. I ended up staying in Canada for another four or five weeks, mm. and then I went back. So by the time I went back, my training company was going on their final exercise. Right. So the training staff decided, even though I'd only done four weeks of training, I could go on final exercise with my platoon. That was good. It was, yeah, so I only had to do the funnel X, yeah. and then I was off the battalion. When I first met the training staff, they brought me in, because, you know, you know, Jay, you know, section commander, and, and then Canadian, they sat me down, yeah. and they, they said, rate the platoon, 1 to 30. Okay. So you never put yourself top. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a big Fijian that was from um, Gus. He was an ex-cop yeah. from Fiji. I put him number one. Okay. Right. So I put him one, me two, and that's how they made the section. Right. Really? Yeah. They kind of orbited everybody. So everybody had an equal share, yeah. at, you know, in this jock platoon. And, but you never, and I remember like, you know, halfway through the black watch corporals like, bud, you lied. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you never put yourself top, do you? Yeah. yeah. You corporal, right? Yeah. So yeah, I did the final X and then rolled into, into battalion. In the British Army, there's a few things that you did, which I thought were pretty neat. So one of them was you did some skiing over there. And when, <laughs> whenever I think about that, I just conjure up these ideas of James Bond or Jason Board or skiing for the British Army. Uh, but you, you travel around to a few different countries to represent, I guess, England in, the, in a few different events, didn't you? Well, you know, being in a Scots regiment, it's not. England had such chance, right? They're very, I mean, the jocks don't want their freedom crazy, but yeah, no, yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah. So I grew up kind of skiing in Canada and then as a teenager, I bought my own snowboard, saved up for it and yeah. snowboarder. So my first tour was to Kosovo, okay. uh, 2000, yeah. 2001. And then, um, I came back and I did my section commander's course, right. 14 weeks in Brecon. Yeah. And then that. That winter, I'm back with my battalion in Edinburgh, and I saw that there was the Army Championships for snowboarding. Okay. So I thought, I'll have some of that. Yeah, no kidding. Set up a, a meeting with the QMSI, the quartermaster senior instructor, kind of our physical training instructor <clears throat> head guy. Yeah. And I said, you know, sir, I just saw this one, you know, like this competition for the snowboarding. And he's like, do you ski? That I can ski. I used to ski, but I'm a snowboarder now, right. sir. And he's like, well, the battalion is going to be sending a four-man team to France to race downhill six to eight weeks, depending how well you do. Right. You know, minimum four weeks, but it could be up to two months. Yeah. How does that sound? Or you could do one-day snowboard competition in Aviemore, Scotland. So I've only skied once in Aviemore. Imagine, Travis, like, I don't even think there's a chair left. I think you get towed up. <laughs> but it's like ski. Yeah. Take your skis off, walk across the heather, yeah. ski some more, 
<laughs> walk across some more heather yeah so i'm like okay yeah i think i'm gonna ski again yeah sir and then yeah so you're just in this four-man team and we spent a good portion in val d'azir france and they actually race so you start racing i think we started in the infantries and yeah. then you can move through the armies it's proper racing it's super g it's downhill it's um slalom yes so i had to get like back on it pretty quick i remember in one of the areas is um Saoirse valley okay and we actually downhilled skied like they close it off there's timers everything you're in your cat suit and there's a run there it's an olympic run and the final you do this hard right hand turn yeah and then it's a one mile tuck yeah and i got clocked coming through there at about 78 miles an hour Woo. yeah like skis are like 220 long no like, kidding like it's it's proper racing and competitive but yeah so that was uh i did that for i think three seasons and then up till probably i think 2005 and by that time between iraq and afghan mm. going on the adventure training kind of right dried up for me and it was like deployment so right but yeah i did three seasons of racing downhill that sounds like, yeah, definitely sign me up. That's the, uh, that's a part of the Yeah, British I mean, that's Army. one thing with the British. They always, um, big on adventure training. I mean, the very mm. first time I ever rock climbed in Canada was with the British Army in Canmore. Really? Yeah. That's where I got my taste for it. Now you got to yeah. do a little bit of rock climbing. Well, before we, we talk about that, uh, did you want to talk about, uh, selection? Yeah. So I thought I'd give selection a go. What's interesting in the UK is, um, if you don't come from an empty background, they make you do an all arms infantry skills course. It's a four week long course. So, you know, in the 2000s, with the SAS being as busy as they were, they didn't really have time to facilitate this training. And this training is pretty important because they want to give the non infantry, the core guys, a fair kick at the can. Right. Right. Because the second phase is you go to the, ju the jungle, right? Mm. So, what they do is they bring um, one of the senior NCOs from the training division. Uh, usually the training wing sergeant major. And what they do at this time, I was teaching. I went back to Catrick as an instructor. Mm -hmm. So I was working at ITC Catrick there as a section commander and instructor. And then they had an element called Psalm Company. And they had a platoon there, the staff, that was responsible for facilitating that old arms infantry skills course, they call it. Okay. So you basically show up at Hereford first. And they run a kind of like a... Uh, a one week skills to make sure you're at the skills they want you to teach the right. staff. And then you move to Sunnybridge. Sunnybridge is the battle camp that you're based out of. Okay. So it's basically like a rifle platoon staff. You have the platoon sergeant doing the logistics. You have the platoon commander and three section commanders. Okay. And the three section commanders then get assigned a section from the, for the, you know, they're the core guys made up. Right. And then the training wing sergeant major oversees it. Okay. So we're kind of, where you're attached to the SS in this training element. So it's kind of cool because then yeah. you you learn their conventional drills. Right. They're not doing any of the, you know, black ops or anything. It's just conventional. A lot of it's jungle drills. We're teaching them okay. for, um, for Brunei. Yeah, for Brunei, the jungle phase. So it's really great. And then the Sergeant Major, him and I got on really well. He was an interesting cat. Like he actually started in the, you know, he's, he's English, but he started in the French Foreign Legion. And then he worked his way all the way up to whatever their... Uh, equivalent to their special forces, left, and then he joined the British Army and then worked his way up and wow. then was training wing sergeant major in the SAS. So, you know, you, you know, you meet the SAS guys, a lot of friends of SAS guys, and they have this look, but this guy had a different look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he was great. 
great guy. You know, he would tell me, he's like, Jace, stay healthy. Mm. You're through. Right. Um, because there you do the four weeks in the hills. That's where you select yourself, the aptitude phase. And then you go to the jungle and the jungle is where they select you. You're right. And right. that's, so you could actually complete the jungle phase and they may turn around and say, you know, sorry, you're not a good fit. Right. Right. But you know, I had proved to John that I was a good fit, I guess. And he's like, Jay, stay healthy and you're in. And that's the biggest thing is, um, staying healthy. Right. And I actually, I did well on the hills. Can we talk about what the hills are like? When you say the hills is, uh. The hills is, uh, yeah. So the hills is, is the first phase. It's like four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. The first week is just kind of a, an organized thrashing. Okay. You know, you do their, their CFT, their combat fitness test. It's the eight miler yeah. and you have under two hours to do it in, but it's a pretty cheeky one. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, just for this first week, they're just kind of, they call it Gilbert's gut buster. So it's like a 12 mile run around this lake with hills okay. and there'll be, there'll be certain phases where they'll stop yeah. and it'll be like push ups or firemen carrying right. somebody up, up the hill. So you do this for 12 K yep. or 12 miles. I, I can't even remember anymore. <laughs> kilometers it's just because the Brits are like the military uses kilometers, but then we use miles. Really? So, yeah. Like if you're, you know, you're, your maps and everything is kilometers. Right. But then if you're doing a fitness assessment, it's three miles. mile or two mile or five mile or oh, so I can't funny. remember anymore. That's funny. Might've been 12 miles. <laughs> it's called Gilbert's gut buster, right? Yeah. So I remember um, one of my friends from the Highlanders, big there, he, um, he was a big boy, kind of yeah. like you, Travis, right? <laughs> so I remember being told by friends who've done this before is that always run with somebody your size. Okay. Right. So, I was aiming for that. And then the group's kind of spread off. Like there's like on selection, like four to 500 people show up and yeah. it just gets weeded out day by day by day. Right? right. So we set off this is day do Gilbert's gut buster and, and, uh, I'm running along and I'm, I'm thinking I'm with this small guy. We're in the mid middle group. And then we come to this hill and the next thing you know, grabbed me and he's fireman carrying me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness. Because now we're going to switch. No, you got a fireman carry him. And I got him like not Lafar. And yeah, then yeah. my knees, like I actually, I think I hurt my knee there on that point. And then yeah. I had a knee injury from that point on. Right. Thanks to Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I was like, I can't do this. And I dropped him. He, good on He actually picked me up and threw me on his shoulder. And then he went the whole way. Wow. Yeah. Besides that, with his injury, yeah. I, I made it all the way up the test week. And then and like, test week's just a series of marches. In areas like Elan Valley is probably the worst place on earth. Um, we call <laughs> in, them baby, in what way? Well, wet. Yeah. Everything's wet. Yeah. But they call them baby heads. Okay. So imagine a soccer ball that's growing in a grass ball. Right. Okay. Right? I've and heard moon grass. Endless fields of this. Yeah. They're ankle breakers. Baby heads. Baby heads, you call them. <laughs> and now those, like you're navigating like 20K across this area, right? In Elan Valley, it's called, right? Yeah. And everything's wet. So every step, boots are soaked. Yeah. But if you're not sure in your step, you're stepping on these soccer balls of grass. And you're going to twist your And you got like 55 or... pounds. You got the old SLR rifle. Yeah. And it's horrible, right? So that's yeah. Elan Valley. I used to like any of the marches in the Brecon Beacons. Okay. Because there wasn't a lot of baby heads. <laughs> I, I love the Brecon Beacons. There's a few other areas that they kind of go to, but it's basically, they just set you off in the trucks. You're doing 4K an hour. And on test week, it's like, you might be, they, they start building up the weight 
And the kilometer distance is every day. And it's okay. like a seven day assessment. This is at the third, the fourth week now. Yeah. And it's just like, you gotta make 4k an hour. You might, there'll be a checkpoint you got to navigate to, and there'll be a, um, couple of DS directing staff there. Yeah. You can't have any map marks on your map and you'll just show up, get in line. Cause there'll be other guys there too. And you say, stop, this is where I am. Okay, you're going to this grid. They give you the grid. Show me where it is. Okay, away you go. And they take your name. Right. They could also um, check your weight of your pack. Right, okay. And- um, They find it light, you're out. Yeah, if it's light, no, they give you a brick. Oh, or, okay. Or a rock, and you got to carry it. And the problem with that, there's a few guys where they're kind of underweight, and if you got this, yeah, you, physically, you don't really recover, like, mm. if, if that happened. But yeah, they'll, they'll and they, they'll also do kit checks. So they'll give you a kit list. And a lot of people- not a lot of people. There'd be a few people that, that didn't abide by it. Yeah. You'd want to call some stuff out for yeah. weight, right? Well, the weight's the weight. So right, for example, okay. if they say this is 55 pounds, yeah. then you pack 55 pounds, okay. but they have a kit list. So it could be like a panel marker for helicopter or airplane marking, mess tins, water bottle, spoon, whatever. Right. And they'll ask us, show us your tarp, show us your first aid kit, show that. But if you yeah. haven't got that, then you're flagged. Right. Because they go, well, you can't ab abide by detail. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, makes sense. Yeah. So that's, that's not good. So that, that could happen at these checkpoints. Yeah. And then you just basically, so the, you know, the first day it might be 25 kilometers you're going, then the next day on, on, on test week, you're going 30 and yeah. then so on and so on, so on. And then the final day, they kind of bring it back and you do, I think it's 25 K we did got back to sunny bridge, you know, six o'clock had dinner packed up. And then that night you start the 65 kilometer long drag, they call it. Right. And I think the weights were like 65 pounds plus rifle. And it's the heaviest it's we had. Significant. Yeah. A couple hours sleep. And uh, I remember sitting down in, it was on this side of Brecken where we were in the, and it was storming. Mm. So it was raining, snowing, like not snow, it was snowing up in, in the beacons. But I remember looking at the truck and looking at all the seagulls. Mm-hmm hanging out here. So if the seagulls have avoided the sea in the <laughs> middle of Wales, there's you, a storm on, right? Right. So, and I remember the S were debating sending us up or not. Really? And then the, uh, the course facilitator. Okay. And he's like, yep, they go. So right. off we went and soaking wet. And as you started climbing up, it's going to sleet and then it's full on snow. So we're soaking wet, heading up into the into the hills. And, uh, I can remember being on top of the fan, penny fan and not being able to find my way down. Okay. I, like I, I kept falling off the sides. It's storming. I'm hanging on and yeah. I'm like, I, and I'd been up there probably so many times training. Right. But I couldn't find my, I finally found my way off the fan and down and it started to get first light and I was so cold and yeah. checked in. And then they get the new grid and I look in, in the back of the four tonner and it's full of guys that have pulled themselves off, right? right. So off I go. How's that feel when you see that? You know, I had a rough night up there though. Like I ended up not knowing it, but I, um, I cracked my ankle. Right. I had some bad falls mm. going up there, but I was just nursing it. I'm like, let's just keep going. Mm. And then as I went to my next checkpoint, I came across a para and a, I think it was an RAF regiment guy and the RAF regiment guy was hypothermic. Mm. We're told you, you don't abandon people. Right. Right. So. I get there and they're just huddling and I'm like, let's get your half shelter out, your ponchos and let's make shelter. 
get this guy wrapped up in a sleep bag, and then we have our um, emergency beacons, like our GPS beacons we activate. Right. They track us. Interesting for me, mine wasn't working that night. <laughs> so when I came into the, uh, the checkpoint, the, uh, the course facilitator, it's like, bud, your, uh, your beacon's not working. They had no clue. So if I fell off the fan, they wouldn't have known. <laughs> They'd find me <laughs> down in the bottom. Right? So they gave me a new one. So we activated it. And then I'm like, okay, guys, I'm off. I'm going to keep going. And I remember the look of one of the guys that was, was there, like, don't leave me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay. And I'm like, okay. You know, and it took the, the directing staff with the Land Rover. They got up to us maybe an hour later. Mm-hmm. This time you're cold, starting to get hypothermic, yourself, mm. body shutting down. And the DS go like, hey, you're all done. And I'm like, no, I'm going, staff. So they radioed down to the course facilitator, came back up, and they're like, great, but if you do this, you do this on your own. Mm-hmm. We're signing off. Like, this is your risk. You accept it. Yeah. I'm like, I got it. Yeah. Off I go. And I had about, I mean, no, I went another 15K. So I'm probably about 40, 35, 40K into my 65. And I was just like, um, that sitting for that hour and a half, it was just, just zapped you. It just zapped. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got there and I said, I can't go on. So I had a, um, you know, it took me a few months to recover from that cracked ankle and everything. I, Cause my goal is just now I knew I was really injured or just complete the march. Right. And then hopefully they, they would have kept me and, um, get better and then go on to the, the jungle phase. Right. So. Well, they do selection twice a year, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So summer selection, winter selection. Yeah. Um, and you took it upon yourself to say, you know what? I'd rather do this in the wintertime. You know, so you're right, Trav. It, it, it just, it, it kind of worked on a timeline. Okay. And it was just like, I was coming to the end of my, um, my two years as an instructor. And I'm like, this is the time to go. Okay. And um, leading up to that though, like I had trained for a year for it. Right. Right. So I, as an instructor had, was allotted a lot of time to train. And mm. then also being for six months attached. Mm. As one of, as the training team for this all arms, I I was really like I was peaking at where I should be, right? Skills, fitness, and everything. It just it, this yeah. was the time. Yeah, I come back, heal up, finish my time at at, at ITC Catrick, and then I go to my battalion, and it was the time we were doing work up to go to Iraq. Right. So um, we had a big exercise in Suffield, mm. and then um, off we went to Iraq. Right. And then um, I was up in LMR with Bravo Company in the Highlanders. Right. About halfway through the tour, I ended up doing a, a pre-course for my senior Brecken. Right. Platoon Sergeant's course. The Royal Highland Fusiliers, who were based in Cyprus, ran it because they weren't deployed there in Cyprus. So a Highlander, about maybe eight or 10 of us left Iraq to go to Cyprus to do our our pre-course. So right. for us to go on these career courses, it's a competition. Mm-hmm. So there might be three section members going to Brecken and there might be three spots for senior Brecken. So it's a competition the whole way. It's very competitive. Right. Did my two weeks pre-course to get selected and then ended up going down to Wales again. Right. I, I got to know Brecken really well. Yeah. 2007, I decided to give selection another go. Right. The problem this time, I didn't have enough tr- time to train. Okay. Because, you know, being a platoon sergeant in the battalion, I didn't, it didn't help either. Like I was uh, a single sergeant. So mm. being a single sergeant, you got a lot of tasks and deployments. Okay. 
I remember being told, hey, Sergeant Bud, we're doing you a favor. We're, we're sending you back to Canada. I'm like, great. Recruiting NCO in Vancouver, they're like, no, range safety in Suffield. Just to, you know, rent a car, go home on the weekend. I'm like, you know, it's like a 16-hour drive from <laughs> Suffield. Like, it's quicker to fly from Heathrow to Vancouver. No kidding. So I did, I, th- I think we did three months of range safety with the Green Jackets Battle Group. Okay. They're going to Iraq. So that doesn't help. Yeah. Doing range safety for my training. So that was like September, October, November. Yeah. So I basically had December to train and then I went back on selection in January because I'm just like, I'm doing it. I got to do it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a double edge because I knew what to expect. Right. So I'm like, oh, I don't need to train as much. I say, you know what to expect. Like on Gilbert Gutbuster, mm-hmm. I never left this Gurkha, right? right. <laughs> this Gurkha and I were partners. Like I, I was like a bungee cord on him. <laughs> so when it came to fireman carry, he was just like this little, little guy, that little helps. Sherpa, right? <laughs> and then he could carry me no problem. So if people don't know who their Gurkhas are, there are um, elements of our British army that we recruit from Nepal. Mm-hmm. And that tradition, the Gurkha tradition, um, is maintained in the British Army and the Indian Army. So, yeah, I mean, the average height's probably five one, five two. Perfect. It was perfect. perfect. Yeah. So that 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 element's good to know. Yeah. But I mean, the rest of it didn't do me do me uh, many favors, and I I because I didn't have the time to train right. for the first two weeks. I I was really struggling making the times. Yeah, I didn't have the same mindset this time around. On week two, at the end of it, they call it the the fan dance. Right. You, you go up Penny Fan down the wrong road back. Yeah. For us, it's pass or fail, and then we go on to the third week. And there was a new element started in the British Army called the uh, Special Reconnaissance Regiment. Okay. And it was fitting under the SF tier. And they were part of the the hills for the first two weeks. Okay. And they're pass and fails fan dance, and then they go to their infantry camp. And there was a guy... I uh, was on the back of the four tenor driving out to the Story Arms to start our fan dance. And he was on my first selection. And then he was on selection for special concert regiment. And I'm sitting there going, oh man, I made the wrong mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, all my SAS buddies that I did have were like, yeah, yeah don't, don't, don't join the special concert regiment. You know, you do. And I'm like, yeah, SAS for nothing, right? right so right, right. I'm sitting there going, man, I made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> I should have seen, <laughs> but it is what it is. Um, yeah. Everything got, happens for a reason. It does, yeah. I mean, I got to test week um, again, but on day th- three and four, uh, my Achilles swelled up like right. a golf ball and then I got medically RTU'd again and that was that. Right. So yeah, like that was January. So another glutton for punishment. Totally. And, like went back and did a summer selection. Okay. Like he came off on the hills, my first one too. He had yeah. a groin injury and he didn't make it. Second one blew the summer away, no problem. Yeah. And he just cruised through it. Really? And he even said summer, 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 but it was that timeline. I'm like, ah, I got to do it now. Oh man. Right. Because you know, back in my, my head travel, I was actually getting ready to leave the army. I thought. Right. So I was just ticking boxes. Right. Like seniors. I didn't plan to do seniors. I planned like junior Brecken, SES, back to Canada. Yeah. It didn't work out. And then seniors came up. And then um, surprisingly enough, that was January. You know, that took up to February. I'm getting ready to, I, I was kind of in limbo. I couldn't, I couldn't really decide if I was staying or going. Because right. I, I actually did really well. All in all, I think I made platoon sergeant in six and a half years. That's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. Even 
like in the British Army, that's like eight to 12 years. You kind of, right. I mean, I came in with a lot of experience. And in that time, I, you know, I went to Kosovo, I went to Bosnia, I did my, um, I only did a couple of weeks in Northern Ireland. Mm. I didn't go there long enough to get my medal. Mm. Well, that was one of the reasons why I did join. <laughs> I'm like, I want my Northern Ireland medal, but yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, did Junior Beckon. And then for us, like the part of your career development, you go to the depot to teach. And right. I had that exposure in Caltrick and actually did really well in Caltrick. And you, um, you get graded and the highest grade you get is like OA1. Okay. That's the highest. So okay. that's like, they call outstanding one. Okay. So that actually got me on my commanding officer's radar. He didn't realize that I was just another section commander. So that, that gets flagged OA1. Right. I was a senior section commander when we deployed to Iraq. Right. We were an armored infantry battalion at this point because we were stationed in Germany now. Yeah. And we were in warriors and I hated warriors. Okay. Because everything I've done is rifle company prior to this or dismount. Right. Or um, light roll. Okay. Right. So I facilitated never being trained on the warrior. <laughs> Gunner, <laughs> commander. So that always defaulted me to dismount. Okay. That always made me like I had some other roles like I would be the um like the smaller arms coordinator for the company so if there's any ranges need to be run right um like we went through a um qualifying all the drivers crew commanders and gunners with with their handgun right we were using brownings at the time so I, I coordinated all that training mm -hmm. so I was kind of like the small arms subject matter extra for the company right so and then for the platoon like I was the senior section commander so I got another OI1 assessment done yeah uh, your, what do they call it your confidential report for the year okay so that gets you kind of flagged really well at seniors and uh what happens is is that you um sit the board mm -hmm. so how i kind of explained the board when you get promoted there's a bunch of like brigadier generals sitting in Edinburgh castle and sit around and they actually grade you okay so normally you need four years in rank yeah and that career course so, cause I had two OI1s and I'd only been a section commander for three years, mm -hmm. but those two OI1s allowed me to sit the board early. Ah, okay. So that's how I got fast tracked through the system. Right. Cause I sat the board early and got promoted to platoon sergeant. So, and then went off to selection, injured again on the hills. And then the RSM and I are trying to figure out where's my career path. Cause I'm like, well, maybe I'm done. I've, I've ticked right. all my boxes. I'm done everything. And then he's like, well, I need a training NCO to go to Africa. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember. Yeah. And then at this time I thought about, um, Pathfinders okay. and 16 air assault was now kind of like it's growing mm -hmm. to a larger, it used to be like a platoon and it's actually now tri-service and they actually have their tri-service selection. Okay. Similar to the Hills, but they do three K an hour versus four and then they do their own camp. Okay. And then I believe the company commander was from two Scots, Royal okay. Scots. So I knew him from Catrick. So. Yeah. Is open try service, and then one of the options as well. I I had been assigned to the sniper platoon, right, in the Highlanders because we had a, a sniper platoon. And prior to that, I was always trained a sharpshooter. Mm. What the RSM's like? Okay, well, here's kind of the career path that I'm thinking is like: go to Africa for a month. I need you to go here. Then you go down and do your sniper platoon or your sniper course, mm -hmm. so then you can take over as a platoon sergeant for the mm -hmm. snipers. Because the sniper platoon in the Highlanders, it's the only platoon where the platoon commander is a color sergeant. Okay. So that's a ranked staff right. sergeant where the rest of the platoons, you always have a platoon commander. Right. So the platoon sergeant would be the platoon sergeant and then the uh, platoon commander is a color sergeant. So I mm. would have taken over as platoon sergeant. And then he goes, I know you're going to train on the weekends. 
and then you roll into your PF selection. I'm like, great, good plan. I leave, and on the way out, the battalion adjutant's like, Sergeant Bud, happy where you're going. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Africa, sir. He goes, no, you're going to Afghan. I go, I'm going to Afghan. And he goes, yeah, you're chipping out here in about seven to 10 days. And usually there's a buildup. Yeah. Like in Canada, it's six months to a year. Right. Britain's usually about three months. He's like, yeah, you're out here. Well, uh, I go, sir, we need to talk about this. So I, I go and have my meeting. It's like, um, the Grenadier guards are taking the omelet, mm-hmm. which is the training advisor's role. And there's a company of leftover privates that don't have any hierarchy or headshed. Right. So he's said, um, they need a platoon sergeant. And I'm sending you and another Highlander corporal section commander to go with his element. So what happened was the brigade commander realized that he had this rifle platoon that was was being coordinated to guard camps. That's what right. they thought this was the staffing was going to be. Right. And ended up, he's like, yeah, this is going to be a brigade strike company. Oh, wow. So they ended up facilitating a lot of the command element from across the different infantry regiments mm. to staff up this, yeah. this strike company. Um, so they actually were building up, but what they needed was a continuity NCO to go out right. and get familiar with the area we're going and all that. So like I was planning on leaving yeah. and coming back to Canada. I'm like, I go to my dad. I got one more tour, dad. Got to go to Afghan. And I thought that'd be enough. Cause prior to that, you know, I've done Northern Ireland, Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq, mm-hmm. and now Afghan. Right. In a short period of time. Yeah. Right? Very short. So I'm like, all right, let's go. Um, and, uh, I ended up getting attached to four or five commando Zulu company down in Garmazir. Okay. And Garmazir is the furthest south of any British element and it's like 30 miles from the um, Pakistan border. Mm. And it was a gateway for the Taliban coming across from Pakistan. Right. And then they would co-locate in this area, take on this company, British company, and then bypass and go out. So it was kind of like a training right. training depot for them. And the British in this area couldn't go any further because they needed that golden hour to fly back to Camp Bastion if you're injured. So that was kind of like the Brits were dug in here. Mm. And it was interesting, they were on, um, there's this hill called JTAC Hill that the British had occupied and made in the 1800s, mm-hmm. 1850, or I'd have to look at the dates when they were there again. And here we are again on top of that with the Union flag, British Union flag on top of that <laughs> on the same mound. Wow. You know? But um, yeah, that ended up being about a seven and a half month tour. So I was attached to the Royal Marines for about four weeks. One of the tasks was we had the new 338 sniper rifle. Um, learn that rifle. Like it wasn't even in the UK. It was literally out right. there. Um, know the ground, get familiar with the ground. And then when our company came out, that continuity can be carried over to mm-hmm. the relief in place happenings. I was attached to the, uh, company sniper section okay. for about four weeks and got them up to speed and then handed it, handed it off to their section commander. And then I took over as a platoon sergeant with my platoon, which I'd never met before. The only guy I knew <laughs> was my section commander from the Highlanders, Big Alex. Yeah. And it was uh, getting to know this new group of guys that I'd never met before. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Oh. That'd be quite an experience. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, when you came back and you said, hey, Trav, let's go for a hike. And <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, let's go for a hike. Now I'm what, 6'6", 250 pounds. We're going up the uh, the hillside and... I guess there's a couple things that stood out at me. Like number one, uh, your ability to just 
go. Like you'd pick a pace. I'm like, my God, why is he going so slow? But you don't stop and you just keep going and going and going, which over time, of course, it's not slow. It's quite a bit more efficient. Yeah. But the other thing that really stuck out was, uh, there's another fellow that we're with. I think he was having an issue with his boots at the time and, uh, had, had a little bit of an issue and he said, okay, stop. We're going to stop right here. You, Dennis, administrate yourself, right? And we're going to keep going. And of course, at the same time I had an issue, I'm like, oh, thank God, Dennis has got something here so I can take care of mine. But the idea behind whenever something small, I'm like, you know, it's just something small on my boot at the time, right? And just stop, administrate yourself and keep on going. And that whole mentality of not necessarily slow and steady, but steady pace. And whenever something comes up, attack it and uh, deal with it was completely new to me. And the amount of distance that we covered in a short period of time and on subsequent runs, the amount of mountains and hills that, uh, you and I have done together that, uh, prior to that, I, I, I wouldn't have been doing, I'd, I'd be going as fast as I can and then burn out of the steam and then have an arrest. <laughs> and I don't know if that's something that, uh, you got from the uh, British army or if that was more something you got in preparation for a uh, SAS selection there. You know, Travis, you know, that concept of, you know, fix a problem when it's small. Right. It's kind of common, right? Yeah. And, you know, feet for an infantryman is your, probably your biggest asset. Yeah. Your boots got to fit. So I was the type of person, I didn't believe in blisters. Mm. I don't believe in breaking boots in. Right. They fit out of the box or they don't. Okay. So I would buy a new pair of boots. So at the time that the boots were issued were crap. Mm. Um, one thing I did on my belt, the British Army, well, in the infantry, we could pretty much wear anything we bought. Mm. Where as long as it was DPM yeah. or green or black, we could use it. So I, I, I was kind of proud that the only thing I went on SAS selection that was issued was socks. <laughs> so I had everything else I bought, right? As a kit mongler, they, they call us. Yeah, right? yeah. But, You're not a kit monger anymore. Oh, not at all. You should see my, uh, I have a sea can of, of climbing and ski gear. Travel. I know you, you do. You don't want to know how do. many skis I have. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I would trial the boots once. I, I would allow myself to get blisters once. Mm. And if I got the second time, they're gone. Right. Right. So I didn't believe in blisters. It's like, yeah. fix it. But it, for sure, like if there's a problem, I, I'd i rather like, you know, because I, as you know, I'm, a, I'm an apprentice ski guide with That's the right. Association of K Mountain Guides. It's like client care. Hey, I need you to tell me I have blisters. We have to need to fix this now, right? Right. But you know, Travis, like that lesson doesn't always apply. Right. Right. For example, like, uh, I think three, four years ago, Mount Hector, I think it's 14,000 feet in the Canadian Rockies. Mm. I was building my resume to apply for a print to ski and we were, uh, ski mountaineering yeah. with my, um, partner, Steffi. We looked at the wind, the weather window and it was cold and clear, but the avalanche conditions were stable. Like, I'm like, we got to go. Yeah. This is when we're doing it. We get up super early and we're heading up Mount Hector. And I had the biggest burly gloves, these Eteric gloves on. Yeah. And I didn't realize that there's a gully that we had to boot pack up and I didn't have the drawstrings. They were like these overcuffs. Yeah. Over and there were snow crystals falling inside mm. and then they were melting. Yeah. But I'm working hard, skis on the pack and I'm like, I'm, I'm warm. Yeah. Probably minus 25, right. but I'm warm. So part of that concept is like soldier on through it. Right. So now we're, we're, we're above the gully and we're ski touring up and we're getting close to the summit and now the wind chill is hammering us mm. and it's probably i think with wind chill steph said it was like minus probably 40 wow 40 50 right and thinking back to my first selection i remember there there's this night 
nav more. So after Gilbert Gutbuster, yeah, that night you do a night nav, and you're in a team of four, okay, and you do like 16k, yeah. So and it's all night, and then you get about an hour of sleep when you get back, and then you do a day. Wow, and it's like that Thursday into the Friday. That's a long day. This no is, kidding. This is like, I think the end of week one. But I remember going up in that evening, and it was the last time I ever used a Camelback. Really? My lesson learned. Yeah, we're okay. allowed Camelback. We still have to carry two water bottles. Yeah. But my straw froze. Okay. Going up on this on this ridge. <laughs> my straw froze. I can't get water. And then I think my right eyeball froze <laughs> as well. And now I've got no water. And I get up there. And the, the group, you're moving at this group's pace. Yeah. And it's like two in the morning. And they're just going. Like, you can't stop. The unsort, they yeah. need to sort myself out. And it's just like... You know, it was horrible, dehydrated and everything. No kidding. So coming back to Mount Hector, I remember my hands being so cold. Yeah. And I remember it was the last break before the summit. And I remember I, I had a, a new dry pair of gloves in my bag. Yeah. But I'm like, there's no way, th I didn't realize that the snow had gone down on my gloves. And what's happened is, is that it melted. Yeah. And there's a fleece element, like a liner. Right. And then the hard Gore-Tex leather shell. So that fleece pushed all the moisture out yeah but it couldn't pass through the Gore-Tex the Gore-Tex yeah. so it was like this ice shell formed in between my finger and the shell right my hands were cold but manageable I'm like I, I remember seeing these dry pair of gloves going there's no way they're going to be as warm as the gloves I have on right I didn't change but my instinct said change your gloves but mm -hmm. I didn't mm -hmm. so we uh we carry on get to the summit take her skins off or her skis, drop in, beautiful ski down. Yeah. Like, it, like going up probably took us six hours, seven hours to get there. Yeah. We were back at the truck in like 40 minutes. Wow. We're high five in, yeah. get some great photos, get into Tacoma, and we're driving back to the uh, the hostel where we had, we were moving hostels at night, so we had to grab our gear and, and we were going to head into another hostel in town. And I remember just, two minutes driving down the road and I'm like, uh oh, yeah, you did it. And the pain just hit me. Mm. We were just only a couple of minutes. We got to the hostel and I gave myself frostbite in my pinky. Yeah. And I gave a uh, frost nip in every other finger. Right. And the pain was so like that frostbite in the pinky, like I was incapacitated. Jeff. Wow. Like I had to sit at the table and just <laughs> moan. <laughs> and then like Steph had to do everything, load us up in the Tacoma, drive to uh, the new hostel. Yeah. And that night, like incapacitated, didn't sleep. And then we go, decided to go to the hospital. Like my, my, my pinky is black. <laughs> wow. Right. And um, the docs, like w we already booked some more nights up in the, the Wapta, up yeah. in the Bow Hut and, and yeah. we do some ski touring. And the docs like, oh yeah, it's great. You get another re-injury and we amputate in August. <laughs> so we look, I go, I go, that's our trip done. Yeah, right? no kidding. So I think that was February. So we came back. So that, that lesson, yeah, Trav, like I had the gear, I know better. Mm. It's that I find now if that, if something's telling you that instinct, um, that voice. That's huge. It, that's huge. It's huge. Like you should do that. Listen yeah. to it. Like this is change. I need to change my gloves now. Right. Change your gloves. You know, I need to do this. That, that is, I think that voice has kept a lot of people alive. Gavin DeBecker, yeah, a fellow by the name of Gavin DeBecker wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. 
Yeah. And essentially, aside from it being a great big sales pitch for his company, which a lot of it is, uh, the underlining thread in it was we have a voice inside of us that is essentially an instinctual voice mm-hmm. that we should probably listen to. If you, it talks about, um, you, you walk into a bar and Spidey senses a, this isn't right. This is not a safe place to be, but then yeah. you start trying to think about it. Oh no, I'm, I'm safe. I'm a big guy. I can take care of myself. He says, you know what? Just, just listen to the voice. Maybe it's time yeah. to take off and leave. And you know, I think that voice job, it's interesting that you brought that up because you know, the British army in Northern Ireland, they call it the absence of the normal. So right. Training you to observe this. So for, right. for example, you like kids on this street playing soccer, football. Yeah. Yeah. And then no kids on that street. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good common indicator. Don't go down that street. Right. So I, I kind of noticed in Iraq at night and we like during the night, we did most of our work during the night. Mm. It seemed like we surrendered a lot of the area to the insurgents during the day. Mm. And then we took over the night. <laughs> they didn't enough. like the day. We didn't operate a lot during the day. They didn't operate a lot during the night. But right. one thing I kind of noticed was that um, dogs really barked for us. Okay. But they were silent for the locals and insurgents. So that was a common indicator for me was that if something was amiss was silent dogs. Interesting. I don't know if the owners took them in or what, but that was just an indicator. Um, And then I kind of like in Afghan, I don't know how I kind of home these senses, but I realized that animals sense energy. Okay. Yeah. And and just prior to maybe an ambush being sprung or something, I just found the, the calmness. Calm before the storm. Interesting. Right? And even to the point where I even found mosquitoes not biting. I don't know how weird or anything, but I, but. <laughs> well, maybe it's something and maybe yeah, it's a mosquito maybe, thing, or maybe it's something that your spidey senses are going, you've got it back yeah. there and you just happen to be noticing these other things that are correlating. And I think that that's exactly it, Travis. It's our, it's our powers to observe our surroundings around us. Right. So f- I remember when, you know, I'm back in Canada now yep. and my girlfriend at the time, we went to watch a movie in Maple Ridge okay. in the new theater they had there. Yeah. And I walk in and something just didn't feel right. Right. Just observing. And I go to my, my girlfriend and I'm like, we need to leave now. Mm-hmm. And she knew me well enough, not to question mm-hmm. my, just my sense of something's not. A, and just as we left, there was a big police takedown undercover on some organized gang members that were there. Interesting. And, yeah. and she's like, I'm never going to doubt your, your sense. Yeah. I, I, I can't advocate enough to listen to that. Whatever yeah. it might be, big or small, yeah. just listen to it. Yeah. So that was just another you know, example of my gut didn't feel right about it. And right. you know, moving into the guiding world, that intuition mm-hmm. is huge. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so part of, of, of your train assessment. And, you know, in ski guiding is a lot of times it's like, what is my gut telling me? Right. And, and why is it telling me this? Right? right. So that's pretty important for sure. Maybe we should take a look at uh, doing a bit more work on the navigation courses that we're putting together. And maybe we'll come back and talk yeah. about those at a, at a later time too, because you were relaying some pretty cool stories about, uh, and, and some humorous ones as well about navigation issues with the, uh, the British army. I think you mm-hmm. over in Africa there too. Yeah. Jason, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to talk with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No worries, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks.